There is a poet called Michael Longley. He lived through the troubles of the Northern Ireland crisis. The troubles, also to speak plain, the war, to speak truth, the time when neighbour battled neighbour and the streets were filled with the shattering of glass from homemade bombs thrown through windows. Michael lived through these troubles. And he wrote many poems trying to tell the truth of what was happening. One of these poems was about the ice cream man. The ice cream man whose shop was on their street and who would list the flavours of all the ice cream for the children when they came in. List them like a song or like a prayer. Like love. Rum and raisin, he would say. Vanilla, butterscotch, walnut, peach. And then he was killed in the troubles in the war. And Michael's wee daughter bought some flowers with her pocket money to lay in the burnt out door. The poem goes like this. Rum and raisin, vanilla, butterscotch, walnut, peach, you would rhyme off the flavors. That was before they murdered the ice cream man on the Lisburn Road. And you bought carnations to lay outside his shop. I named for you all the wild flowers of the barren I had seen in one day. Time and valerian, loose strife, meadowsweet, tway blade, crow foot, ling, angelica, herb, robert, marjoram, cow parsley, sundew, vetch, mountain avens, wood sage, ragged robin, stitchwort, yarrow, ladies, bed straw, bindweed, bog, pimpernel. The poet, as father, is attempting to give the child, his daughter, some beauty in all this pain. A new prayer as ancient as earth to pray. And meanwhile, the scribes and the powers that be of Michael's time made decisions behind closed doors of church and state, which saw a country divided and generations lost. But isn't this how it always has been? That war this year, war, the 100 years of the Great War, which we remember today. Jesus says, Beware of those who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honour at all banquets. They devour the widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers and we could add make long speeches justifying the atrocious decisions which lead to the making of the widows and the orphans and the shattered men. And the thing is, we all get caught up in it, don't we? We get caught up in the lies and the speeches and the prayers, caught up in the culture of the day and what it is saying about who we are and how we should behave and what we should believe. And we become captive and we stop asking questions and we give over our power, over, over, here you go, and we buy into the lies. African-American theologian Debbie Thomas believes that the widow from today's story, bought into the lie that the powers that be from her time have sold her and that she should give the last of what she has to hold up a system which Jesus has already declared to be corrupt and that in doing so she is receiving the praise of the culture when actually the culture should be standing alongside Jesus in denouncing the system that our radical Jewish prophet actually believes should be thrown down. A religious system which punished the poorest and sneered at the vulnerable and devoured the widows' houses. 
So who is devouring the widow's houses in our time? And what is it that they are devouring? And why are we so captive to both the stories that are spun and our own sense of powerlessness that we are allowing this devouring to take place? Well, clearly, we are devouring our countryside. We're gobbling up the land to build unsustainable Lego houses on what was once bush, gum tree, wild sky. Rather than going up, up in our cities and up in our suburbs and developing sustainably around where the infrastructure is already in place. And clearly, many of us seem to be prepared to let our great barrier reef be devoured, gobbled up by the heating climate along with the Galilee Basin in Queensland, devoured by Adani and his coal mine. But what else? What else is being devoured? Well, maybe our taxes. The ones we give for schools and hospitals and health. According to the latest figures, no other country, not even the UK or Germany, has spent as much to commemorate the First World War as Australia. And according to Guardian journalist Paul Daly, Australia has passed the point of peak commemoration, having spent more than half a billion dollars on commemorating Anzac since 2014 alone. Australia now apparently has a plan to blow another 500 million this time to renovate the Australian War Memorial. But wait, there's more. Australia this month will open the $100 million Sir John Monash Interpretive Centre in northern France, an arguably unnecessary museum dedicated to the already duly commemorated 46,000 Australians who died on Europe's Western Front during the First World War. Add it up. From 2014 to 2028, when the still sketchy proposed War Memorial Edition will be funded, Australia will have committed or spent at least $1.1 billion on new war commemoration projects, presumably excluding the recurrent funding of the memorial itself. Now, of course, we should honour and never forget our war dead, of course. But surely this money would have been far better spent on the living not least the many hundreds of veterans, their partners and their children whose suffering is compounded by their struggles to win medical acknowledgement of and government compensation for service-related injury, like PTSD. You send a man or a woman to war, they don't come back unbroken. But we are so captive to the myth that we were born from the blood that we silently agree to have our taxpayer money spent in this way. And furthermore, Paul Daly writes, On Monday, the federal government outlined an economically and technologically questionable plan to provide almost $4 billion in support of local weapons manufacturers in pursuit of its aim, its glorious aim, to make Australia one of the world's top ten arms explorers. Where once it was the sheep's back, then farm equipment, then cars and minerals now, it seems, Australia is aiming low. Let's build a manufacturing economy and an international reputation on machines designed to kill. What flowers will we name to lay at the doorways of the blown out houses wrecked by our weapons? I mean, there's poppies, of course, not native, but symbolic as they flutter on Flanders fields. Or maybe wattle, 
Blackwood, ghost gum, blossom, swamp, salt bush, prickly, paperbark, bird's nest, banksia, star, leaf, grevillea, and mallee blue flower. And who will we sell these weapons to? And who will the new widows and orphans be? And when will we have the courage to stand as Jesus did and notice all these widows? And to call out the systems that have created them? War in the world, war on the streets. Ireland, France, Melbourne. Let's finish with a few more words from Michael Longley in his poem, All of These People. He writes, Who was it who suggested that the opposite of war is not so much peace as civilization? He knew our assassinated Catholic greengrocer who died at Christmas in the arms of our Methodist minister. And our ice cream man, whose continuing requiem is the 21 flavours children have learnt by heart. Our cobbler mends shoes for everybody. Our butcher blends into his best sausages leeks and garlic and honey. Our corner shop sells everything from bed to kindling. And we today, we folk from Melbourne could add the old Italian man from Pellegrini's, who gave cake to the policeman and coffee to the minister without any charge, and who created community in our city. Who can bring peace to people who are not civilised? All of these people, alive or dead, are civilised. And all of these people I loved. <laughs>